Hello, Tome Show listeners. This is your Tome editor, Sam Dillon, and I am here to bring you exclusive Gen Con D&D audio. This is coming to you, just like in previous years, unedited and uncut. We hope you enjoy it, and if you like the show, please visit our Tome Show sponsor, Noble Knight Games, where Out of Print is available again. And if you visit their site, please tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Welcome, everybody, to Brewing Better Worlds, a panel about improving your homebrew world building and just world building in general. Um, you have three distinguished panelists today. On my left, hello, I'm Colin McComb. I was a TSR designer starting, Jesus, back in 1991. I uh, helped develop the Birthright campaign setting, and I did a pile of work at the Planescape campaign setting, and then I went to Black Isle, where I worked on Planescape Torment, and now I'm the creative lead for Torment Tides of Numenera. A lot of world building. We should have had him go last. Yeah, well, sorry. <laughs> we decided to go big early. It's like the trailer. Um, hi, I'm Wolfgang Bauer. I'm uh, with Cobalt Press. I started a TSR around the same time Colin did and did a lot of world building uh, for Al-Kadim and also for the Planescape setting. And later on at Wizard of the Coast, I did the Dark Matter campaign setting. Um, I did a little one that somebody complimented me on just this morning called Chromosome that is widely forgotten, a biopunk setting, uh, and most recently the Midgard campaign setting for Cobalt Press. I'm Brian Suskind. I'm a uh, Cobalt Press freelancer. Uh, written a bunch of stuff for them, and most recently we just did the Southlands expansion, which was a 4,000-mile addition to the world, which was quite huge, so that's our most recent claim to fame. By volume. By volume. (laughs) So I'm Anna Meyer, and I did the maps for the Southlands, and kind of my speciality has been the last decade or so to do large overland maps and map whole, yeah, game worlds, so to speak, so yeah. Cartography is important for world building, so we'll get into that in some detail. Um... I think we're all going to take our shots at this topic, and then we will open it up for questions a little later on. Um, world building is a huge, huge thing, and I think primarily game masters homebrew because they're not satisfied with what they see out on the market. Everybody wants to put their own spin on it, and eventually everyone says, I can, I can do that. I can do that to my own satisfaction. I can do it for the people I play with. Um, and I can do it better. I can do it different. And for people who are naturally creative, it starts with, I think, a map or a town or a premise. I want to get... lightsaber. Or a lightsaber. <laughs> um, and I kind of want to ask our panelists, so when you are setting out on a new project for new world building, um, you know, what's your go-to source? What kicks it off for you? I... I'm going to have an example going back to my junior high school days of how I start world building. I'll I'll save that one. Okay. No, or I'll go with it. Okay. All right. I'm going to go with it. This is my embarrassing first attempt at world building. I was 12, all right, so cut me a little slack here. Uh, My friend Jim said, you've been running this game for a long time. I'm like, it's been six months. Yeah, Jim, it's been a long time. Um, I want to run a game. Oh, great, Jim, you do it. It's a bunch of work. You'll have fun. I want you to do the world building. Uh, what do you mean? I want you to have the village and the map and all this stuff. Uh, you know, here's my lunch money. And I said... You extorted your friend for lunch money? No, I didn't. He bought me fish sticks of his own free will. Wow, so you were professional early. 
I don't know if that was professional. That well, maybe, yeah. You got paid for your work. I got yeah. paid for my work in fish sticks, people. You still do. Uh, <laughs> Freelancers love fish sticks. Uh-huh. <laughs> Keep saying it till it's That's true. Right. Sure thing, boss. Sure thing, boss. Uh, and, and it was when I I realized, all right, Jim thought I was going to give him the Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion, the maps, and everything for lunch money. And I said, but Jim, you don't need all that. All you need is the first town and a little map of the hills nearby. And it was like, he was disappointing. Like, oh, yeah, I guess that's enough for the first game. But you're not getting my next lunch money until you tell me what's over the hill. It's like, all right, Jim, that's next week. I'll have what's over the hill. And it was my first lesson in world building, which is don't build more than you need, right? He wanted a six-volume set, and I kind of told him, yeah, here's a village and uh, the Baron. It's a start. So for me, that's where it is. It's always one little drop, and what are the, all the implications that come out of that? Um, there's other ways that I've done world building since then, um, but the lesson of don't over-engineer it has kind of stuck with me. Yeah, I always uh, I always start out with a premise, personally. Uh-huh. Like, uh, the first one I really remember building was... Is anybody here a Black Sabbath fan? You know the song Neon Nights? I was like, God damn, I love this song. So I sat down, and I was like, I'm going to make up something about the Neon Knights. And I had just this great vision in my head, and I built up their castle, and I built up a mission about where they go across the sea, and my players immediately took it off the rails. Yeah. And I was like, well, okay, so I need to do a little bit more than the one village. Than the thing you're interested in? Damn players always are interested in something else than I am. Yeah. I think I was 12, too. The most satisfying world-building is the stuff you do without any players involved. Yeah. And I honestly think it's <laughs> a worthwhile think... hobby. I, maybe these people are called novelists, but I don't know. That also <laughs> tends to be the loneliest. I mean, I think for me, when I'm world-building, I, I tend to, I think I, I come at it from the writing standpoint. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to... I mean, I, may, I think maybe a combination of both of you. I, you know, I, I, I kind of like... I think about it as what themes do I want to do and what would a world be like with those themes? You know, like when I, I ran a, my players, at one campaign that lasted about six years, wanted it, they wanted to, all of the game to take place in one city, which... In that's your world. That's your world. And so you, you had to think in a microcosm, like, but just thinking about one city, you could apply all those rules to creating an entire world. I mean, it's really, it's thematic, but it's also... You don't want you don't. I didn't want to go. Well, what's the next city like? Because it didn't matter. Right. Um, but I, I, I think, and you know, Anna might agree with me on this. But I, I also want to. I want it on paper. I want to be like when I'm doing a world. I start sketching because I can't picture how the world looks unless I have some sort of shape, even if it's just an outline. When we did the Southlands, Wolfgang said, "I want you to do something, you know, like Africa." And we're like, you know, how big that is, and he's like. Yeah, it's only like a thousand miles. We're like, no, it's it's not. It's like many, it's like many, many thousand. Which that was an ongoing argument throughout the entire project. But the first thing that that Ben McFarlane and I did was look at the look at the shape. And I think until you define and that project, you almost are defining what your borders are. Like if your borders are just a village, because that's what you're starting with. Or if your borders are this one river or this ocean. If you're doing like a pirate campaign, you need to know where your edges are. And once you know where the edges are, then you can decide how to fill it. Yeah, but see, and I know Anna's going to disagree with me about this. <laughs> I, I think the edges and the geography can be what Colin is saying. It's an order of knights is the heart of it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, 
the satellites are the various castles and relationships between the knighthood and the people. And it really doesn't matter what the geography is of that campaign. The neon knights are cool um, for reasons that have to do with their society, right? So that's society building. And I think world building is often society building in addition to having the geography right. Yeah, they have to go hand in hand. Yeah, they go together. Yeah, for, anyway, we haven't heard from Anna. Let's hear. Yeah, it. For, for me, it's like I start from the visual standpoint. When you're a map maker, you want what the terrain looks like. But I want the fantasy, the, the culture, and the setting theme to influence the map. So, so for me, it's like a merge of the climate. Is it a desert world or an icy world or something? But is it an evil one? Then I want to have reduce the colors and, and work with it. So, so I want the the kind of cultural or alignment or whatever you might call it to influence the geography. If it's it's demon infested, you should see it in volcanoes. And we have we had the volcano debate in, in the Southland yep, Republic too. And so many debates. Yes. <laughs> so, so so you have stuff like that. So but culture reflects society. Yeah. Like Mordor isn't a place of green flowing springs yes. and gently waving yeah. grass. Yeah. Oh, but the, the problem yes. for mapmaker is that could be that, that you have these authors. They come up with all these wonderful. You have like the eight thousand mile desert, and then they have the huge jungle and then you have the highest peak but as a map maker it's kind of a difficult thing because I have to kind of take these iconic locations and, and kind of glue them together and, and it's that kind of fabric in between that, that I need to concentrate to make the whole thing to make sense and when you build worlds from you start at the city and then you build them outwards and then you get bored and you say oh well, here's a, it, it, we, we put a coastline here because now we expanded far enough in this direction then you have these rivers that magically start 50 miles from the coast and go 5,000 miles across the continent and then go up there. Then you realize there need to be some high mountains by the coast. And these are these tricky questions that me as a map maker have to come in when I read the text and so on and then put to them and we have to kind of put things back and forth. Geology and climate is a whole chapter in the Kobold Guide to World Building and uh, cartographer Jonathan Roberts kind of lays down the basic rules that people should know about how rivers combine, yes. and mm -hmm. what rainfall means, and where deserts form, and none of it's super complicated, but we often decide to ignore it. Yeah, well, for, for instance, uh, when I when I wrote Thunder Rift, uh, I was like, okay, yeah, so I've got this whole thing mapped out. I'm super proud of this map. I've got all these rivers. I've got these little societies built out here. I've got this whole thing figured out, and I pass this map over to the cartographers. I'm like, look at how good I am, and they're like, no, this is nice. Uh, how do these rivers work? Yeah. Because they're this flowing apart, flows. and then they're flowing back together, and then they don't get which way. Which way does the river flow? Wait, there's the waterfall. <laughs> this doesn't work. Alongside <laughs> oceans is very popular. They, they go alongside, and it's just the plane between the river and the ocean. Sure, and that's, 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 that's yes, how it works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what Yeah, see, this is where I have to confess. My father is a professor of geology. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that explains a lot. It probably does. <laughs> And so knowing which way rivers flow and how climate Damn. works and, yeah, yeah, all of these things, like, you know, this is how rock formations go and this is yeah. a subduction zone, right? And I'm like, yeah. well, I knew that in grade school. Everybody did, right? <laughs> so I got some of that by osmosis at home. But it's it really helps the, the plausibility, the veracity, the, the believability of your map. Um, if it if it follows natural, I mean, yeah, of your world, if you are following something like normal physics, and if you decide to break with normal physics, do it early, right? Say it's a flat world and it's icy around the rim and hot in the center, or yeah, if you're going to go versa. outside what's expected, you sh don't just do it offhand. 
Use it to highlight something. Yeah, make it make it central. And I want to say this kind of early on in, in this in this discussion. When you're when you're building a world, you're telling a story. And granted, the story you're telling is the is the backdrop to the other story you're going to tell that takes place within those worlds. But the same sort of rules apply. Leave yourself. And this is a weird, but Doctor Who, the new Doctor Who series, does this very well. They you leave yourself hooks. Don't just have a forest. Have a forest with things in, like have a, a purpose. And it doesn't. Why does this forest exist? Well, it exists yeah. so there can be a spider people. Throw one giant tree in there, or have a plane with you know. There's a crystal garden in the middle of the for, the plane. You don't have to know why it's there right now. You don't even ever have to know why it's there. But you have mysteries set up so that if the players happen to run across it, it's there. Or if later you need the place where the 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 foe needs to go to set off the apocalyptic weapon. You could be like, hey, I have that crystal thing. That'll work. Yeah. So you need three things, right? You need a map. You need names. We'll talk about names yeah. in a minute. And, and you need a reason for all of these places to exist or a story they tell. I think maybe that's fair. Yeah, or, well, I, 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 mean, would, I would also say that you want to have some sort of thematic consistency throughout as yeah, well. No, I, because yeah. if, you're, if you're starting off a game that's you know going to be high fantasy, very super grim, Joe Abercrombie, George Martin, then... Woo, everybody dies. Yeah, exactly. Then you want to make sure you stick <laughs> with that. It's a very short campaign. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, the tendency for a lot of players is to say, I'm going to turn this into comedy. Because I, you know that's part of why we game, right? You sit around and laugh at the table. But as a GM, if you're building this world, you don't want to be like, okay, and now Cersei does it, and somebody's like, she bones her brother. I'm like, ah. Spoilers, yeah, people. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> that happens in like the first chapter. It's like so, chapter one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, but I, as, as a GM, it's your job to enforce the rules for this world. So, I mean, you know, work with your players to help build the world. You don't have to do everything yourself, but you want to make sure that... Player-driven you know, design. Yeah, there's a number of, there's actually a number of great... Uh, free, I should say, um, world-building thing like uh, rules out there that incorporate you and your players doing it together. I think one of them, I'm blanking on the name at the moment, but you take on the role of the gods of that world, and you actually build the world in phases. Is that Arya? Yes, yeah, and then at the end of which, you know, you have, not only do you have your pantheon of gods and a world to, to play in, and it's not all the way complete, but it, the rough stuff is there, but you also have a table of players who are invested in your world because they built it. Right, but then as a GM, and you've offloaded some of the work of world building, which is helpful, which is nice um, if you're pressed for time. And then you can go off yourself as the GM and design whatever campaign or story or whatever you're going to do, and start changing things around. But they, everybody, because like one of the hardest things about a campaign and world building, especially private world building, is you're the only one who knows about it. Your players, who are supposed to be playing characters who live in that world, know nothing about it. Well, that's why the map's so important. It's yeah. a bridge between what you know and what they know. Yeah. And even right? if you even if you put out you know pages of documents about your world, the likelihood of all your of all of your players actually reading it and remembering it is hmm. somewhat minimal. Right, and this is I mean somewhat. that's true for any actually yeah. for published campaigns too. Yeah, I mean how many of us have played run games in Eberron or Forgotten Realms or you know Midgard? And said, oh, this is the way it is, as you all know, and ha like had total blank looks from all of your players who right. obviously didn't do the reading. Right. Well, it's more fun to look at a map and say, what's this thing over here, than yeah. it is to read the chapter and sure. say, oh, I, yeah. I guess I 
Where is that? I'm not sure, right? Uh, a well-done map tells the story for you. Yes. I think it's possible to actually do a campaign and world-building at the same time. I mean, you could have the, the, the lonely village at the edge of the known world and have them venture into the unknown, and what's what's over that hill? The I'm, gem, lazy. You say, I don't know. I'm lazy enough to do that sometimes, right? It's like, I want to do a campaign that starts in the Iron Crags with some dwarves. What's over the hill? I don't know. I don't have my fish sticks from Jim yet, but when I do, then I'll know, right? And thus Next Midgard week. was born. Uh-huh. But um, I think, oh, sorry. No, go. Some of the basics, I think, is a, is a good, wise thing to lay down the basic shape of the continents and, and things like that. So you don't end up with the rivers that start in nowhere going. So you have the... And, and chop it up to several pieces. So that way you can... You have several areas that you can have thematic changes. You don't have to worry too much that, that then you can have the desert part of the world and the live and, and nothing set in stone. Exactly. Right? So, so, so make... Use white, pencil. Yeah, white big pieces of the map, but have a basic idea that and this is this continent, and, and, and then have the basic climate, like, okay, it's cold up in the north, and you have this part here where it's hot and scorched, and, and so on. So, basic things, and leave them open, and then and fill them did, in part by Midgard part. Midgard did yeah. exactly that, right? We said, we're going to divide our chapters into cultural and climate regions, right? Like, yeah. seven big ones. And one is the Ruthenian Plains, which are wide steppes with centaurs, and nomadic peoples and uh, the master of Demon Mountain just for fun. Yeah. Uh, and one is the seven cities full of high culture and well-known... Daring do. Yeah, and, you know, a warlike people. And each of them had, like, okay, thematic consistency within a region. Mm -hmm. The regions themselves were quite different to give some variety. I think the mistake world builders sometimes make is they say, I need to have all the themes... And this is where the kitchen sink settings come from, which are so popular because they cover everything. Um, but they cover everything, so they don't cover anything in, in a lot of depth, right? Like, how many themes is the right number of themes for your group? It might just be one, right? If it's one city. Sure. Or it, depend, it depends on the campaign you want to run. Or it might be a more nomadic traveling campaign with two or three main regions or, or what have you. Yeah, well, and the theme the theme is based on the campaign you want to run, too. Especially if you're building your own home, uh, your homebrew setting. You say, okay, this is the story I'm going to run for this campaign. So the world's theme is a background to... It's essentially the setting for your campaign. And you set the campaign on its tracks, and this stuff all informs it, but... This is the story you're telling. Yeah. yeah. And, and the next thing you know, you're making infinitely large maps for an infinite number of planes. And I, but I should yeah. say that also that I, I've spoken to a lot of people about world building, just in, you know, talking. And, and some people have this vision of, if I make a map, it somehow limits my options. And I, I, think, I think it's the opposite. I think if you have a map with board, you know, where you outline the continent, my thought automatically when looking at a map is, well, what's over past that border? What's what's next? Well, where if you kept going, what what would you find? And that's, I mean, so that's a human instinct, right? right. We do want to yeah. know what's over the hill. I think, though, as game master, you don't want to reveal it all. No, but you want to know it personally behind the screen. But you may only show the players the city map. Oh, you definitely start, shouldn't show right? the whole thing. You but don't want to show because you... they will ask, "What's a thousand miles over there? Can we play our first adventure far, far away?" Or they're going to immediately want to travel to point A when you wanted them to go over here. But what you were saying with you know start them if you're starting with a usual thing with like you're in the village, you might do the map of the village and the surrounding area, and but that's not the entire world. That 
that they'll There's automatically gravitate toward the, toward the edges. Well, that's that's the point at which you get the impassable thickets and the unclimbable mountains uh, and the ice flows and so forth. That's that's like that's like might and magic, isn't it? Like that was one. Like magic yes. one had that. You know, you have to walk down the little aisle. That's a video game like, trope that drove me crazy, <laughs> and still, it's like oh, it's useful. I know there's a mechanical technological reason for it. All that too. But ah, I hate it. I know. But just, just play my RPGs are, are yes. <laughs> yeah. Trample in game is different than real world because you don't actually move. You sit around the table. So it, and you can fast forward. Yes, <laughs> a journey becomes not how many miles it is. It's how many things happen during the, that sure. travel, so to speak. So you can you can travel across the kingdom that is a hundred miles, and you have one hundred interesting encounters with NPCs and, and ambushes and whatnot. And right. that feels like the end of the world. You can they, they, you can spend say we're going to travel. Eight thousand miles across the plains and nothing happens, and, and that feels like. But in terms nothing. of but in terms of world building, that brings up a good point that you, you if you want to have if you're going to have a, let's say a list of a, an encounter table or however it is you do it in your home game, and this goes kind of goes back to something that Colin was saying. Those encounters should be thematically consistent within the region you're in. You can't be having like the the intrepid highwayman holds up your carriage. And then you're suddenly having, you know, mushroom people attacking the minute later because, unless your world happens to have those two people coincided, all mushroom people are highwaymen. <laughs> How do they get the hats on? <laughs> they they're born with them. Oh, the, high, oh. the forest next to the. Yeah. Well, I got you. I want to talk about <laughs> over your lupins. I want to talk about travel for a second and transport because we've sort of touched on it in different ways, right? If you have a city and that's the only place you want to play, great. But a lot of us, when we're doing world building, we'd want to share all the different parts of it. Um, and that means you want to make travel either really so fascinating that people just, your players want to go place all the time, or so easy that they say, ah, oh, let's just visit the seven cities because we have a shortcut that's built into the world. And I'm thinking of something like the Lightning Rail in Eberron, yeah, sure. or the Shadow Roads in Midgard, where there's some sense of adventure that taking that route, that mode of transportation, um, is a little bit of an adventure in itself, but it also means we've just shortcut the whole encounters of the journey, and and we're we're just exploring points on the map and the ones that yeah. interest us most. I mean, are you like me? I, I almost want to take all the teleport spells out of the game. Uh, I'm yeah. on record <laughs> as wanting to do that. Yes, and do that in some. Home but I think game. That, I think that's just such a GM. Thought. I mean, I think the players are like, oh, for the love of God, we don't want to go down that road. Flying carpets are better because you can, you can well, kind of attack them. The forgotten carpets are always better, let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. If you truly can teleport to any point at any time, it, it puts a bigger burden on the game master, right? And it means there's less control. It's a control freak thing. Well, not only that. I mean, if you've got to teleport, then you've got to start building in the narrative consistency for that yeah. as well. It's like, okay, well, why am I not teleporting into the king's bedroom, killing him, taking over the kingdom? Well, let's, let's be honest. I think the real reason that we don't like teleporting is because we probably spent hours figuring out what the heck's happening on that road. Yep. And the players go, no, I just got to that level. We're teleporting. Yep. Oh, really? Teleport is the death of world-building journeys. <laughs> yes, it's yep. true. But I, think, I think we're probably getting off topic. We are off topic a little. But, but building in portals or other... Before you have teleport, you may still want characters... Uh, moving around quickly. And some games and genres, I don't know, modern, pulp, Cthulhu, sure. you don't teleport, you still have to take a Zeppelin from place to place. I mean, I think, I think you and know... there's Zeppelin battles then. Yeah, of and course. It's an awesome. opportunity. Yeah. So, um, I, I think we also, with world building, we should maybe touch on the, the thought of, 
of the history. I think we should, but we're already 25 minutes in. All right, so what topic are we going so to do next? So I want to take a few questions, oh, because we could talk the whole time, oh, yes. but I want to take a few from... Oh, there's other people here? Oh, yes. Oh, hello. <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> um, and they are all doing world building, and they may have concerns or issues or um, uh, ideas that we have... Or questions. Only so, questions, questions, questions that we only have so much time to address. So, yeah, if we have a question, we'll take at least one, maybe two, and then... Sure. Well, we uh, I'm actually trying to like, build up a uh, campaign right now, and um, I'm kind of using bits and pieces of the uh, uh, Rain of Winter campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and they actually use teleportation in there. They're locking it down with uh, arcane uh, runes and other forms of other things to kind of restrict the uh, arcane aspect from like my uh, PCs. Yep. I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of portals versus teleporting. Mainly because there's something about going through a doorway that, like, narratively, I like. You know, we wrote in one of the Midgard books, this character called the Door Lord, who just wanders around making doorways to send people to random places. It's almost like a game randomizer. You know, and he, no rhyme or reason was ascended to different parts of the world. But portals... But you could also do this even if you wanted to keep the teleporting thing. I think the problem with teleporting isn't so much that it skips things. It's just, and you're right, it is a control thing. It's, you, the GM has no way of sending you elsewhere. I mean, if there was a random, if there was a role that said, do you end up where you want to go? Or, because there, are, there is a rule about that, but it's always like you're, four, you're 12 feet off. Yeah, you're not rather than like two hundred miles in a different well, direction. The, the difference between a teleport and a portal is that a teleport, the players can go anywhere, whereas a portal is a specific point to a specific point. Right, and so and they have to go to the portal, right. not just like wherever right. they are. So it's a journey to the portal, and then it's whatever happens in the portal space, and then there's the specific point on the other side, and that's where you get to really say, and here's how this is, as opposed to them saying, I show up in the treasure room. Yeah, I think Bruce Cordell had some good advice on this, too. This is sort of an issue of resources of high-level play. If, if your players have lots of teleport, um, Cordell's advice in Epic Level Handbook was um, if they have those powers, you should write your adventures in such a way that those powers are required, right? So if they have a lot of teleport, you should manage your campaign or manage your adventure so that the only way to the top of the infinite spire is by teleport. The only way into this dungeon is by teleport. The only way out of the death trap is by teleport. You make the tele you make teleporting part of the world as opposed to something the players get just for free. Yeah. I mean, even portals can be, you know, what if you had a world where you, you had teleport magic, but you could only do it when you're standing next to these giant crystals that dot the landscape. Then it becomes, these are your highways. Yeah. You know, people build towns around those crystals right. or vice versa. Yes, it sounds you sort can, of like the Southlands. Yeah. You can also mm. use the, the, the teleporting as a, you can gain control back if you say that when you teleport you're going through this other medium or dimension and that alerts the gods or the, the, the stuff like that. So You draw you attention exactly. from the abyss. Yes, so you can, you can get hijacked on the way, so to speak, and stuff like that. So it yeah. involves a risk. But you also don't, you don't want to penalize your player for 
an ability that they get yeah. normally. Yeah. You don't want to be like you cast you want a magic missile and die. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So it depends on if you're doing it from the evil overlords into him, yeah. then, then he will be alerted or immediately yeah. because he kind of. But from what Colin, from what Colin was saying, from a world building yeah. standpoint, you make you make whatever medium of travel part of the world as Suits opposed your to your purposes. Yeah. 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 All right. Another question. Or we're going to totally rat hole on this okay. teleport thing. Yeah. So uh, my question is a little meta. I'm curious what your role models would be for world building. Obviously, we're all familiar with Tolkien starting with language and the way that he did it. And yep. George R. R. Martin starting with like, how do I retell the fall of Rome and the after effects of like Eastern Europe and Europe yep. and stuff. I'm curious what you guys particularly would point out as other good role models to kind of look at for ways that they've done it. Ways to think about world building. Yeah. For me, it's Elasny and Moorcock. Roger Zelazny and Michael Moorcock, those are the hugest influences on me. I think for me it was it was uh, it was David Eddings was because I grew up kind of when those books came out, mm-hmm. and I think those were the first books that I saw that where I looked at the map and went, wow, look at all these places. And since those books tended to be, we're going to go to all those places, it, it worked out. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like that that era of books, I think it was like the you know, early '80s, you know, mid '80s, you know, that David Eddings style. Was, that kind of influenced me the most, I think, with world building. Yeah, let me, let me, I guess, uh, explicate on my answer a little bit more. Roger Zelazny, Nine Princes in Amber, uh, Roadmarks, uh, Jack of Shadows. I mean, he, he comes up with such cool ideas in these worlds, and he makes them fit the stories, essentially, and that's always just been, I, I've always been blown away by his imagination. And then Michael Moorcock obviously needs no introduction because he's just got the super cool kingdoms and the super cool items and all the gods getting involved and all these really high concepts that help drive these petty mortal conflicts. So, I like petty mortal conflicts too, but I find as I get older, I look to history more than I look to literature. Oh, well, right? you're going to say that. Well, then, uh, sure, history is great too. Way, yeah, to, show us, way to show us up, Wolfgang. No, that's no, no, cool. I, it's, it's yeah, all right, fine. I'm going to go with it, right? Now I'm becoming dry and academic, but I go and read something like uh, Cults of Rome or, or you know the history of religious practice in Rome, and I say, that is a key to me to say, I want to have a warlike nation. Hey, how did Mars, Ares, those things work in prior times? And it's just a, a sourdough idea starter for me to go to history because people are weird. Other cultures were strange. The past is freakish let me, often. Let me sidebar that. One of my writers just uh, recommended a book to me last night called Heirs to Forgotten Kingdoms about the historical roots of minority religions in the Middle East. For well, example, send, send, me send it link. to me. Yeah. <laughs> For example, a demon that is half man and half book that sits in the darkness reading himself, a taboo on wearing the color blue or Dibs. a religion so secretive Dibs. that its practitioners don't know its secrets. Dibs. Awesome. Colin, I've known you longer than Brian has known you. You're going to forward that to me first. <laughs> but, but, actually, but that's huge inspirational yeah. well, right? So that's well, Wolfgang brings up a good point. And, and, and you know, it's, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but you know, when, you're building, when you're building a world, you have to keep in mind that your players aren't going to know what you know. So by dri- digging up from history, it, it gives them something to hold on to. Like I know like when I, the last world that I built for my a home game... I, I very vaguely kind of went, okay, this is sort of Francish. These guys are sort of German. And also it lets you do accents, which is fun. But, you know, but it also, you know, allow, gives you something to research. I mean, if, you know, if you're just building a world from nothing, uh, you, you have nothing to, to build off of. You know, like if I, but if I'm building a world that I'm basing around France, I, you have the whole history of France to sort of steal. Yeah, Kenneth Hyde says that uh, 
basing your your created world on the real world means that it is um, well documented with reference material, right? That there's <laughs> there's plenty to to swipe, um, and and it's not really swiping. It's you go back to the history of France, and if you dig around a little, you discover this is a lot stranger than I anticipated. Sure. And you know this count and this this material is is compelling and interesting, and wow, it flips right into my current case. Well, even if your players don't really know anything about France, but when you start saying the, you know, the cardinal or the... You the know, young the, maiden who wishes to drive yeah. the invaders from the kingdom. You know, and, or the, here's the, 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 the powerful king with the equally powerful religious guy, and they're working against each other. Even if they know nothing about France, there's something about our collective history that it'll resonate with them, and it feels familiar. And that, and that, rather than having this, you know, a world made of spheres where things roll around on on squares, and they, there's nothing for them to hold on to, because the, we're, we're dealing with, a, especially with fantasy, we're dealing with worlds of magic, and it's already alien. So you need to give the players some something something concrete that they can hold on to, that the, they can then use, they can then believe the rest of it. Oh my goodness, yeah, the value of the common, the mundane, yeah. the touchstone of everyday life. I love throwing that stuff in. I should always bread describe up. bread. When in, whenever they whenever you go, players go to a tavern, describe the bread because players everybody knows about bread. Yeah, and if there is no bread, that tells you something yeah. too. And bread should never have raisins because <laughs> you don't know if it, I totally agree. it could yeah. be a raisin, it could be a bug. You don't know. I'm pretty sure the elves in my campaign eat raisin bread in defiance of your edict. <laughs> See, I, we know about your elf. <laughs> Could you talk about applying real-world economics to a fantasy <sighs> I wish I could. I don't take have the degree. Into, take you into an alley and beat you to death. <laughs> <laughs> Should we call up Ed? He, I'm sure he could elucidate. Yes. <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing. It depends on your players. I mean, if you have players who are going to become merchants and are going to actually trade... Merchant princes, the campaign. Right, then you're going to need. You're definitely going to need to know the, how the social economics break down, and and then you start having to deal with magic items, and then everything goes out the window. But you know, most players aren't going to be interested in. You know, no, they want to know what they can sell the caravan right, loot for. Right. And but when what they, it's worth. But when they go, there's a trade dispute, and Naboo is being blockaded. You go, oh, the Senate. You know, and, you know, and it's, it's <laughs> worst scrawl ever. But you know, it's. You ha- if you're going to do it, and, and there's great, I've, we've all seen great worlds that had amazing economic systems. The problem is, the four people who lo- knew no economics and played play D and um, D, they they love it. But the rest of us kind of go, "There's money, right?" And it's changing hands. But you I need, have some of it. Yeah. yeah, you need to make it dramatic. It can't be just dry trade. It's only interesting things. when it goes wrong, when something goes haywire. Right. Then it becomes interesting right. for the players. When say, well, that and well, yeah, it's only interesting when it comes wrong. Is a wonderful world building premise that we used in Midgard, namely, find all the points of conflict and heighten them. Every border that could be at war or could have raiding, yeah, mark that with a big red thing. You know, every uh, every national struggle, every those people over there are all demon cultists. Every one of those should be. Um, the top of your list when they're when they're doing a tour. Yeah, I, money money is a proxy for power essentially. There so you, go. you know the if there is if there's a problem with the money, it's because somebody is trying to gather it to themselves to gain more power for themselves. And that's and if there's a lack of money, there's a powerless underclass that is angry. Right. And I think for for world building standpoint, I think the the way to start is is imports exports. 
especially if you're dealing with whole countries, even villages. I mean, what are they producing? What are they bringing in? Olive oil. Gotta have a lot. Of so you got the mafia spices. <laughs> yeah. Well, and once you once you know what they're what they're trying to get, sell and what they're trying to bring in, that automatically gives you story seeds because who's bringing them in? Who's selling it? Who's trying to stop them? Yeah. Who's smuggling it? Who's stealing it? Right. Well, yeah, one of the reasons I was asking is uh, based on your location, it, giving treasure and other rewards to your players that mm-hmm. isn't money. Right, sure. And, like trade, oh, like I love exclusive trade that. deals, or you know, land, a, a mine, something like that. And, but once you start handing that out, then it has to make sense. Sure. No, I mean, if they, I visited Germany many years ago. There's a barrel there, a beer barrel so big they have a dance floor on the top. It's like a. <laughs> That might have been a dream. <laughs> no, no, I've seen it. It's like 60,000 gallons of beer, right, in one barrel. Okay, it, it's, it's crazy. Is it a treasure? Well, if it's in a dwarven stronghold, I think it is a treasure. Yes. How yes. do you move it? <laughs> one, one, one mug at a time. <laughs> but you can only carry it for about an hour before oh, you get rid of it again. But you need to think about these things when you're worldwide. I, I, we made it, I was in a, playing in a game long ago where we made our gem go insane because we decided that if we were going to travel from town to town, we were going to bring cargo oh. and start trading stuff, and his mind exploded. Because then you have to deal with how do you sell it? Who is you selling it to? And how many potatoes will you get for those chickens? Well, he made the mistake of letting us figure out what the what it, we like. Well, we just, we sell it for like one and a half percent, right? And he's like, sure. Well, we made so much money, I mean, and it was and it, it, it ends up becoming it breaks the world because really most of these games aren't designed to have real economic systems. Because when you deal with someone who can do things with magic. How do you account for that? But you can use e- economy and, and trade as a very adding flavor to the world, and yeah. it helps you build you the can, world. Yeah. So you, you can yeah. you can base encounters. You can have who's out traveling on the roads and the streets, and and, and who's peddling things, and and what is there to do. That's a wonderful way of adding flavor to your world. Well, so, and if somebody's and, somebody's <laughs> trying to be a merchant prince, then yeah. you know, I mean, not every not every business deal is a success. Sometimes right. people get ruined. Yeah. But if you yes. know, and if you know the that the ship goes down, yeah. it sinks with all that stuff you are carrying. The from potatoes down have down. blight, and you've just ruined happens. the crops for miles <laughs> around. Yeah. But if you also know, let's say for example, you know that your city that you're world building or beginning your adventure in produces olive oil, you know that there's trees, you know yes. that there's olives, there's, it has a certain climate, and so you that begins your world building. Yes. You know, you know. Actually, I think doing world building from like. Uh, Natural resource 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 sources would be fascinating. I've never done it. Is it, but it is. It's a much. It's advanced settlers of Catan. Yes. I mean, I, I don't think you should start with those, but I think when when train, the train rumbles, I think when you you know when you do that, let's say you're playing Pathfinder, you do up your settlement stat. You know, at the end when you start doing, you know, with Midgard at least, I, I think it's in Paizo too, where they do imports and exports or what their trade what the trade goods are. You can then. You pick your trades good that look sound cool or interesting. Then you have to look back at your world and go, would they produce that there? And what does that mean? All right, I think it's time for. Wait, we got a question that goes back. There. The guy back there has had his hand up a couple times. Uh, we got two guys. All right, and then one of the back here in the front. All right. So, like on the idea of magic, like let's say we have our magic system where we kind of summed it from a different plane of existence. Mm-hmm. What would be your guys' idea of like adding the ability for those players to visit those planes? Would that be something you 
consider at the beginning of your creation, or would that be just something like, oh, hey, I'll... What's the multiverse like? Can you visit other planes? Well, I think, I think, yeah, I, think, I guess, yeah, it, dep uh, it depends on what you want to do with your campaign. You're talking really. to two Planescape people, I... I yeah, I, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I immediately went, well, I, sigil. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, yes. Yes, right from the very start. Um, it does depend and, on your campaign. Right, it opens certain doors. Um, in, and then you have a lady of those. And you have a lady of those. But if you really want a certain gritty, closed feel to your campaign and not... Yeah, make them work for it and figure yeah. it out on the way. You know, have, the, have the story built up and then figure out the way in which they would do that. Make them, make them earn it. Make them earn opening the portal and then make them regret it so they want to close it but again. From, from a mechanical yeah. standpoint, for like, you know, I, my first game I ever played in was Planescape. Um, Good man. Start, start, you start at the top. Um, and the mechanic of that campaign setting, if, if you're not familiar with it, was that there were these portals that led to all these other planes. And as part of the world... Portals had keys, and you had to figure out which key opened which portal. And sometimes you didn't know. Sometimes it was right there, but sometimes the keys were like a, this blade of this certain type of grass that was growing nearby, or moss, or it could be a drop of blood. But there was nothing to tell you. Yeah. But that that was a that hallmark gave flavor of the world. to the world. Yeah. So I mean, if you if you are going to have a camp, to answer your question, if you're going to have a campaign world where they're pulling powers and creatures from the beyond, and you want that. You want your players to go there, then design around that. I think it, it it speaks to something else too. Campaign worlds and world building can be staged, uh, prepared in advance so that there are inflection points for them, right? So things move along. We're learning the world. This is the world. The world is stable. Bam! There's an inflection point. Well, what is that? It's an invasion. It's the first portal opens. It's now the world is different, right? Players love to feel that they have influenced the world. They've stopped the war. They've opened the first portal. They've, you know, prevented some effect. Yeah. But I think changing the world or being heroic doesn't mean it goes exactly back to the status quo every time. Some yeah, campaigns. That's a sitcom. Right. That's a sitcom. It goes right back to where it was. One of the hallmarks of screenwriting, which is what I do when I'm not game designing, is... Why now? Like, and, and you should think about that when you're world building. Is why is the events of the, your campaign? Why is it happening now? Why didn't it happen a hundred years ago? Right. Why does it, it happen a hundred years from now? Something has to be. If the world's great, you wouldn't have adventures. I mean, there's a, a perfect world has no murder hobos. Yeah. Kingdoms that are just and fair and well ruled with good government and happy peasants. Yeah, you, they, they're that, musical, Those are musicals. Yeah, those are musicals. Yeah, you, you, you have the happy people singing in the fields and, you know, the flowers are singing. You don't want stuff. those. You want the bitter kingdoms where the well, seven sons are fighting them. I think it's Bertolt Brecht who said, pity the kingdom that needs heroes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Wow, Brecht. No. Now oh, who's, class, who's raising the yeah. town here? Yeah, throw All it down. Right. Bring it down. Are you going to drop the mic now? <laughs> <laughs> I think we have one. <laughs> I think we had a question up front. Question up front. All right. Uh, just real quick, you touched earlier in the beginning of the, of the session in regards to kitchen sink versus sure. the specific themes. How does a world-building GM who wants more options to draw from uh -huh. not make a kitchen sink campaign that, that, that throws the world out of control when the players can go anywhere and do anything? Right. How do you, how do you keep control of that type of, of a scenario? It's a question of... Mm. Are you selling it or are you doing it at home? Well, I mean, yeah. If it's a home campaign, you, you just say, well, these are the seven options available and there are seven regions and there are no more, right? 
uh, and you, you put certain flavors and themes out of out of bounds, you say that's a different campaign. We're not doing Robin Hood here. If you want to run that game, go ahead. Um, but if you want to have a lot of variety, there's a bunch of ways to do it. I mean, one is to go world hopping and make that a premise from the beginning so that every so often there's an inflection point, you're at a new world, and that could be chronological hops, all right? Like the timeline advances 100 years sure. every like so Avatar often. Avatar to Legend of Korra. Yeah. Uh, it's really, there are different ways to put dividers between regions, cultures, and themes. <laughs> um, and, and you need to pick one that works for you, like advancing the timeline, uh, portals between planes, uh, putting things out of bounds. Um, nothing says you have to put, you know, an Egyptian theme into a world. But Wolfgang highly recommends it for all of them. I recommend it. I'd say you're better off with it. But... It's your world and your game, and you should only include the themes you want. I, I don't think it's a matter of GM control so much as designer choice. Design is a choice. World building is a choice. And the choices include what you put in and what you leave out. And kitchen sink design, this is what I say in the Cobalt Guide to World Building, is kitchen sink design is saying, I'm making the choice not to say no to anything. Which is also a great rule for running games. But Yeah, but it, it has pluses. Yeah. And the big minus is... Yeah, but also depends no if, if, you're, if, you, if your character, if your players are never going to go to all over the world, all around the world, why spend a lot of time designing it? Yeah, but they're going to want characters who are like sure. from all these mysterious right, places, right. even if they never visit. Right. But that's why crossroad cities are such a thing. Yeah. But I think it's. I think the kitchen sink is. I, I never liked the term kitchen sink in a way because it's. It almost sounds. Like a negative, I don't think it is. A, I mean, I mean it disparaging. Oh, okay, <laughs> then it's fine. I mean, well, but I think maybe it's, a little. I think, you're, I think you're, it's it's never saying no, and so it's it's you're you're building a world that's full of all the stuff you want in it, and it you know it's, it's like inclusive. It's a cornucopia right? design. I guess. It is, but it, it runs the risk that it alienates some players. You know, you've got your big burly paladin in his shining armor, and you're like, yes, yeah, so I'm going to go right some wrong, and then you've got somebody who's playing a bird person who's sitting up in their chair, cawing and flapping their arms at you, and just like, you like describing Midgard. This is not yeah. the game I want to play. See? <laughs> well, and that's just it. If if the world you're building is meant to serve a particular purpose, and the purpose is, hey, we're doing King Arthur meets Cthulhu. Then things that don't meet that definition yeah. don't go in, right? And if, you well, have a so, and if you have a player... So we're saying no kitchen sink, then? Well, <laughs> I'm saying no kitchen sink, but obviously, commercially, kitchen sink is very viable, successful, and makes a lot of people happy. Sure. But, but I think is, it's uh, not as... Kitchen sink? Yeah, I think if you're homebrewing your own world, it's a mistake to do a kitchen sink, because... You could have a better experience if you pick just a few flavors than if you throw everything in the. The thing is, though, a commercial. You don't have to sell it. Even a kitchen sink world isn't is almost a collection of smaller campaign worlds all put together. So, like, like you know, even Midgard has the seven cities. We, there's the plains. There's now the Southlands. Each of them individually is its own, almost its own separate world building event that it just linked together. And Galarian is the same way. You know, it has these parts taken as a whole. Yeah, it's it's totally a kitchen sink. But your games aren't ever going to all happen all over the world at the same time. Well, I, I guess it depends on if you've got your scoops of ice cream. You know, yeah, that's a good way. Different flavors put out here as opposed to letting them all melt and then swirling them together. Yeah. And you're like, I've got some disgusting soupy mess. Don't swirl it. Yeah, don't that's, swirl that's really the, yeah. All right, that's all right, our answer. Wait, don't swirl the ice cream. Right we have another guy in the back. 
Uh, talking about I don't have a lot of money and I have zero artistic talent, but I do need to draw borders in my made up world. Uh huh. Do a cartography. What's the what's the meaning? <laughs> <laughs> we all look at I think they, you don't have to do it stylish. When when I do they, when they someone comes to me and said do this map of this world, then then I put I you take a huge piece of paper, something huge or many small ones, and and then I draw it many times the scale so I can sketch in the details so I can write all the small details it doesn't have to look like anything as long as you put many 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 small details there and then leave areas open and say you have a huge forest and even if you show it eventually to the players and you have a huge forest you can hide things in plain sight that forest can have a volcano in the middle or some interesting <laughs> swamp that no one's seen so and yeah. things like that can come from areas that that Normally, on the big map, huge, enormous map that doesn't have to look pretty, but it can have a lot of details. And then you can you can commission someone, or you can do whatever, and and detail parts of it. You don't have to have like we do for the Southlands and others, detail everything on the whole map. If, but that's good when you're selling it because then you need to sell the kitchen sink I, and it needs to come. I should it. point out that when Anna objected at one point when she was doing the Southlands map that we never gave her feedback. But that was because every time she'd show us a map, we'd rapidly go back to the manuscript and change the manuscript to reflect what the map was doing. Because, but if, if you're never planning on selling your campaign yeah. and it's just for you, yeah. then it doesn't really matter what it looks like as yeah. long as it's giving you the details you need yeah. to yeah. make this world come alive to your players. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've got, the, I've got the artistic talent of an enthusiastic five-year-old. So, you know, I, I, can, I can draw the maps yeah. and I understand what's on the maps for yeah. myself. At maybe that point, it's a reference France. for yourself. So, so just maybe, maybe you, scale, so you can get lots of that. details in there and, and keep the details. And then, then leave areas and just say, oh, huge forest. And then, there be dragons. Then, then you can, when you zoom in and, and, so to speak, get there in that campaign, then you can put stuff in there that appears and so on. So yeah. that way you can add interesting things there, while you're doing it. There was a campaigns. rule yeah. in the Forgotten Realms back when Sembia was left alone, right? Wasn't yeah. that it? Where it's like, well, we're going to detail the Forgotten Realms to the nth degree with text. But Sembia is going to be for people to detail the way they want at home. Um and I think you can do this with your homebrews. You can say, I'm saving that part of the map for later. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, yeah, filling out yeah. big blank spaces and just saying, yeah. if you're not publishing it. Yeah. No, no, it's true. I'm, not, I'm laughing because I pitched yeah. the Wolfgang several yeah. things, and he's like, we're not touching that part of Midgard yet. <laughs> yeah. But don't tell your You don't have to do it all at once is the, yeah. is the important yeah. rule yeah. here. Don't leave it open wide because then the players will say, what's there? Right. And they right. want to go there. So, Don't so show them that. Huge, uh, empty plains with some tiny small hills. Or if you, or, something. If you or, want them to yeah. go there, you yeah. write, here there be dragons. dragons. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. <laughs> or, yeah. or, you know, I think I'm a big believer that the world shouldn't level to your players. The world should be, in and of itself, various levels. So if you have an area that's more powerful than your players at the beginning, and they go wandering in there, they should suffer the consequences of that. Yes. Oh, that's a video game design. Yeah. Oh, the world leveling to your oh, players? Oh, yeah. No, no, yeah, you don't scale to the players. You say, this yeah. is the tough area, and yeah. you walk in here, you're going to get owned. Sorry, dude. But I think that's I think that's realistic in a way. I mean, because, you know, you're not going to... There's not like the world populated by level one evil bad guys. And no, it's cool. I, uh, I, went into, uh, I went to Fort Knox the other day, and all the guards were, like, leveled down to me, and I just swiped <laughs> all the gold. It was yeah, the world is uneven in its difficulty for access. It's yeah. true. But, it, but it, what that also does is, by planting those areas, even if you don't design it, even if you design just the border guards who are keeping your players out, 
they want to now because they you've told them no, they want to go there, which later you can plan ahead. Speaking of enthusiastic five-year-olds, yeah. get out of the cookie jar, kid. That's right. Uh, I only want yeah. the cookies. I think this probably has to be our last one. Yeah, Question. I gotta Matt pass this around. Could you pass this to Matt? GM likes to keep his math great big secrets, and then I have to draw my own math as I'm entering, which I yeah. sometimes uh, find out I, I've traveled west when I thought I was traveling east, and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. Uh, so getting back home is limited. Uh, but do you, how, how do you feel about buying maps? How do your public knowledge of your character are giving your gamers knowledge? I think, you know, it goes back to something we touched on earlier, which is the GM knows the world and you don't, especially in a homebrew campaign. So I think you don't want to, maybe you don't want to show them the whole map, but I, I almost want to give my players something because yeah. or else how, how, can they, how can they go off the rails and follow the elves off into the forest and do the thing I don't want them to do if I don't give them someplace to go? Sure, but on the other hand, I mean, people, you know, people, medieval people had, you know, experience of 20 miles outside of their home, and then sure. the rest beyond that, they're like, oh, sure, Africa's full of three-headed guys and yeah. unicorns. Yeah. With feet yeah. backwards. And, yeah. Yeah. But I think if, if, if I were running, if the situation that you're talking about, I would, as a GM, might give my players a very rough map. Not of yes. the world, and maybe just of the, and it would depend on their, the society level, obviously, <laughs> but I mean, if you went to some center of learning in this world and went, I need a map of this kingdom. I would, as a GM, probably give you a very rough map with not a lot of details, because that's probably what was available. Sure. It might include some things that you want to hint about, right? Here's the pilgrimage road. Here's, right. Yeah. Here's the Abbey of St. Germain, and the players might go, oh, I wonder what that's all about. And you're like, oh, it's full of vampires. Yeah. You know? How I solve that technically, being a map freak, is that I take the, the, the map of the general area they're in, and then I, I leave it sharp and all details within a few miles. And then I simply blur it more and more the oh. further away from them. So they can see where the main coastlines are. They that's can see awesome. that there's oh, some, awesome. some, some major mountains over there, but they can see any details. Let's go to this fuzzy thing. Yes, exactly. So, so it's fuzzier and fuzzier. Yes. And then, then I can so leave some sharp things. When they no. notice that someone tells them, oh, it's a volcano over there, or it's a castle over there, then I can kind of Photoshop filter sort of blur. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. 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 I want that. You can also give them multiple maps that don't yes. match. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and false maps, yes. Or not, that, not actually false. They're just wrong. I mean, oh, look, if, you look at medieval, if you look at medieval maps, yeah. they're awful. I mean, you know, they, they vaguely are like, yeah, there's a coastline. It does this. It's like, they, no, because who's going to check? In a world where you're not, you're like Colin said, you're never traveling more than twenty miles outside your village. Who, who's going to back? Who's going to fact check you on it? So, a, a great adventure seed in a world is giving someone a map that's just not right. Yeah. Well, but you also have handout versions. So if they go in and ask someone to draw a sketch, taking them to to the next kingdom, those I do them hand. Yeah, those are parchment yeah. back things, and they can have all sorts of wrong detail because. Surveying is a modern invention. I don't think that fantasy worlds had that good surveys. Uh, they had satellites and aerial photography or whatnot. But then I have a GM version of the map with everything in the right place, and then I can, that's the one I use, and I expand it for the players as they go along, so to speak. And I have handout maps that are various degree of errand, er- errors in them and, and added stuff and the three-headed men and, and all the stuff like that. I think we need to end it there, unfortunately, because I think we're out of time. Uh, we are just about out of time. Um, we have time for one more? Uh, we're getting there. Um, 
closing statements from everybody then? We have time to just sort of wrap it up quickly. Be uh, good to your players. I, no, I don't have a good closing statement. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, I'd I'll say... I'll take one in a second. All right. Well, I'll, I'll kick off closing statement very briefly. Um, I mean, world building is, is a perfectly fine and wonderful use of your time. Uh, don't feel any regret if you spend way, way too much time on some precious kingdom, region, forest section that nobody else ever visits. You'll have had the satisfaction of having homebrewed that part of the world, those characters, those societies, those places. Um, and, you know, there are parts of Midgard that I have written up and never played in the, the home game. And I still feel good about those. They're oh, still we, fun. I've got something to add to that. Plus, if you do have that one thing that you want to dig in there that you're really just totally detailed on, then you can make that start influencing the campaign until the players say, okay, where are all these jerks coming from? Yeah, where are all those Neon Knights headquartered? We need to yeah. have a word. Exactly. Ronnie James Dio, I'm going to have a word with you. <laughs> I, would say, I, would say, I would say, I guess my biggest piece of advice would be don't set anything in stone. Um... Even if you spent a lot of a lot of maps, a lot of hours and days building this map, you know, let your players guide you in certain things. If it, if they want to go off into the west and you have no idea what's over there, great. I mean, because it's supposed to be a cooperative thing. You're not forcing them into your vision of what this world is. It's supposed to be a game where you're all working together. So let that guide your world design. Make it fascinating, and they will want to go. Yeah. 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 Uh, start with the broad strokes and then fill in the fine pencil things while as the players go along and then have sprinkle in some 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 cool stuff here and there and, and place it and yeah that's it's how a I stew go. I yeah. thought you were going to say just, you just need to have maps <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah, yeah, please have maps yeah. well, thank you all for your excellent you questions coming. and your attention thank you for listening and if you enjoyed the show please consider using our Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links found on the show notes at thetomeshow.com. Thanks again, and keep gaming.